short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. Welcome back to the most exciting episode of the Cold War series I think we have ever done. I think that's fair to say, yes. right? There's n- yes. nothing more yes. exciting. We're peaking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're going to peak tonight. Some of us have already peaked twice uh, today, but we're going to peak I tonight. I thought that was you peeking through yeah. the hole in my bathroom when I was having a shower last night. I was probably right. There's... You're right, but there's peaking, and then there's peaking. I peaked earlier, so now I can peak alone tonight. I'm looking forward to it. There's nothing. There's anyway, nothing more you? exciting than reading books on the history of NATO. <laughs> oh, oh, it's a page turner, baby. It's uh, but it's necessary history, especially in the world we're living in today with yeah. the war in the Ukraine. It's 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 vital to have a background in this, and, and we'll we'll find a way to make it funny. Yeah, to, yeah. to be completely transparent, um, please. You know, I have my own assumptions about the creation of NATO. You know, right. I've said before on the show that you know I, I see NATO as a way of America protecting. It's Marshall Plan investment in Invest, Europe. Exactly. Investment exactly. in Europe. Um, yes. And in reading the books, uh, like Kaplan's books, et cetera, that doesn't come out. Like that theory doesn't exactly. come out. But there are other theories that map in with that that we'll get to. It's like mm-hmm. there's no evidence so far in the record of the stuff that I'm reading that that was the Americans' overt thinking. Like nobody has said, hey, we need to do this to protect our Marshall Plan investment. And it it looks like it was the Europeans trying to drag the Americans in. But then we'll get to some other stories about different CIA fronts and the role that they played in uh, Mm -hmm. the European movement. And we'll yeah we'll start to see a variation of my story come true. Sort of, I don't know. It's interesting. Like for me, with my you know being aware of my assumptions and cognitive biases that you need to do if you want to be a rational thinker, even, right. you know, if you try and be as rational as possible. I was having lunch the other day with a guy who was a friend of mine. We worked together at Microsoft. He was, then after I left Microsoft, he came and visited me. He was living in Sydney. I was in Melbourne. He came and visited mm-hmm. me and stayed in my house the night I interviewed Noam Chomsky. And now I haven't nice. seen him since. I haven't seen him for like 19 years. And then he's living in Brisbane and he called me up and said, let's have lunch. And so we were talking about identity, and I was talking about the idea of building your identity around the search for facts and truth right. instead of attaching mm. yourself to this ideology or that ideology. Right. Trying, to be, trying to be militant with yourself about going wherever the facts lie. And yeah, that takes courage. Yeah. And, well, I don't think it takes courage. It's just a decision that that's... You're wrong. That's... <laughs> that's who I want to be, right? I want to be the exactly. person who yes. seeks, seeks out the facts and then builds conclusions based on the facts. But even if you do that, my point is going to right. be that you still yeah. have cognitive biases. Like after you've read a lot, oh, you've yeah, seen a human. lot, you you, yes. you 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 have a certain kind of heuristic is like, well, it's probably because of it's like qui bono, right? Is right. A, is a some it's a form of confirmation bias, I guess, where you're looking for data. You go well. There's probably some money behind this somewhere. 
let me go yeah. try and find it. That's a form of confirmation bias built right. on a cognitive bias of, of you've seen it happen so many times in your reading of history. You're just assuming. You just assume yeah. that that's going to be there. So yeah. I'm aware of that and, and I'm trying not to let that get in the way of giving a um, honest uh, uh, right. discussion of this. But the flip side of that is the people who write the history books mm-hmm. have their own cognitive biases <laughs> and their own form of confirmation bias. Exactly. So when they're going through yeah. the primary source materials, they're leaving certain stuff out. They go, well, that's kind of probably not important or probably not relevant. Yeah. Um, it reminds my me. my theme. Reminds yeah. me, um, you know, on the Bullshit Filter a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Seymour Hersh's Nord Pipeline article and how the mainstream media wasn't touching it. And right. then this week, the New York Times finally did a story on the Nord Pipeline, but with a different conspiracy theory. Now they're saying that it was a pro-Ukraine, according to their anonymous sources. Right, right. It was a pro-Ukrainian group that blew it up. And I'm going, hold on, well, the US government is a pro-Ukrainian it's group, pro-Ukrainian. right? Isn't that the same thing? <laughs> And then, but they don't mention Seymour Hirsch until way down towards the bottom of the article. There's a long article. Right. Way down towards the bottom, they say Seymour yeah. Hirsch um, came out with an article that said the US government did it. And that was it. Um, yeah. And, but it's nowhere in the headline. You know, they're not really talking about Hirsch. And yes, <laughs> um, Trevor Bell, uh, from the who I also had lunch with recently, uh, from the Iron mm-hmm. Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast, sometimes co host, guest co host in the Bullshit Filler, sent me uh, a, a, an article, somebody, a screenshot of Twitter, somebody had posted, um, Chat GPT, write me a headline and a first paragraph of a story about the Nord Stream pipeline where you uh, completely ignore the fact that one of the most respected and awarded investigative journalists in the world today has already written a story about this. And then below that, the response was the New York Times' article. Uh, it was very funny. Anywho, uh, just talking yes. about cognitive biases, um, confirmation yes. biases. Anywho, back to NATO. Yes. Now, so, yes. oh, God, in the last few episodes, we've talked about Czechoslovakia, we've talked about Sweden, we've talked about Finland, what was going on in those countries, a little bit of Italy, Mm -hmm. a little bit of Germany, the whole Bizonia, Trizonia, the Berlin blockade, you know, the the Italian elections and the communists uh, looking like they're going to do well, so the Americans needed to get involved and and, and shut that shit down with some secret secret, uh, political donations. Um, behind the scenes uh, during 1947 and 1948, the other thing that's going on right. is a, a series of alliances, mutual mutual assistance treaties being signed by various parties in an attempt to create a United States of Europe. Yeah, good for them. Now, this, this was a vision that a lot of players had back uh, in this period, late uh, post World War II, late forties. Right. Um, you know, key figures being Winston Churchill. He was really pushing for this. Truman mm-hmm. was really pushing for this. Eisenhower, after Truman, was really pushing for this. Right. Um, and I think the main agenda, from what I can gather, uh, was it was a way of solving the Germany problem. Yeah. Is the way it's often referred to. Yeah. Okay, we've had two world wars now because of Germany. Right. Um, how do we stop that from happening again? How do we stop uh, all of these European countries 
forming alliances with each other and then that ending up in a war uh, mm -hmm. or them, you know, starting a war because of trade dis disparity, dispar dis 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 dispar dispar disparity. Dis dis Disparity. I think that's probably the word I'm Let's go with that. going yeah. for yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> inequality. Yeah, in you know, because we know that whether or not people can get their head around this, right? Yeah, World War Two. The, the the motivation of the Axis powers. We've talked about this on earlier episodes. The motivation of the Axis powers, Germany, Italy, and Japan, was about tr uh, trade uh, with. And economic blocks, they were struggling yes. uh, with their own economies because, due to the nature of their land, you know, Japan's a little island, Italy right. very mountainous, Germany's quite mountainous. They didn't have a lot of natural resources mm -hmm. and uh, a burgeoning population, and so they needed to get access to natural resources right. for their own economic growth. Yeah. And they were being shut out of that by various economic superpowers or economic mm -hmm. blocks. Yeah. And uh, so they did what every country before them had done when they needed shit and couldn't get it yeah. on the free market was yeah. we'll, go, we'll go take it. You know, yeah. well, we'll just go take it then. Yeah. And the rest of the world went, oh, no, sorry, you can't you do can't. that. And they go, well, you did it. They go, well, yes, but when we did back it. Back in the day. It was okay. Yeah. 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 20 years ago <laughs> when we did that, it was okay. <laughs> You, you, no, no sorry, the tacky. window of opportunity is closed. You Trey can't Gouch. do that anymore. Yes. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, uh, this idea of a united Europe was let's try and get all of these countries together, A, so they can fight a Germany or even maybe a Russia now. Right. Uh, if it comes to that, in, in some sort of a united front. Yeah. We tie their economies together, tie their military defences together, and you know, try and integrate Germany or at least West Germany into that. Um, and if if we can't do that, then at yeah. least you know, make sure that they have mechanisms in place that go beyond your traditional uh, right. bilateral treaties. That they're not have working. Been yeah, the tradition. They're not yeah. working. Yeah. If, um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, ju no, just that no. I, I, I know I'm glad that you prefaced what we're about to say, because I think it will make a lot more sense once we start jumping into this. But again, World War Two was not the end of all problems. It was the beginning of all diplomatic problems. Like you're saying, Europe is like, OK, we've had our butt kicked twice now by one of our own. What are we going to do? Uh, everybody's now focused on the threat, the supposed threat of Soviet Russia, except for France. And you really can't blame them. They're focused on, again, their fear of Germany. And everybody's like, no, 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 forget the Germans. That's split up. Yes, one day the country will probably come back together. But right now the threat is uh, Soviet Russia. So as we go through this, you're going to see everybody... Make, like you were saying earlier, make attempts. Oh, let's do this alliance. Or let's do this alliance. Or how about we sign an agreement or whatever. Everybody is just fearing the next war. Hopefully it won't be for years to come. And they're trying to figure out what they can do uh, to do better next time that it comes around. Because everybody's assuming there's going to be a World War III. Why would you not assume there's going to be a World War III? And so what you're about to see is the various countries trying to line up their ducks to try to get ready. And because, and you were making this point earlier, because there are so many varying, differing um, priorities for the different countries, it ain't that easy to do. It sounds like it should be able to, you know, we assume because of the European concept today, we assume, oh, it'd just be easy. Everybody get together. No, they had to birth this thing and it was anything but easy. And the Americans, 
again, like you were saying, want it to happen, but they want it to happen away in a way that benefits them because because why not? That's what you do. You look out for yourself. Yeah. And America at this stage, we'll get into it. We've talked about it in the past. You know, there was there was a lot of divided opinion in mm. the United States about good point whether or not this should happen and if it should happen, yeah. how it was going to happen and what level of involvement the U.S. should have. Yes. The isolationists They're versus still there. the They're still there. integrationists. Yes. Um, yeah. So England and France uh, had been working on their own treaty after mm-hmm. World War II. Right. Uh, as well as one involving the so-called Benelux countries, Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg. Now, mm-hmm. if you if you look at a map, if you're not really familiar with uh, Europe, if you look at a map of the UK and Europe, if you uh, take London and and you just if you go directly horizontal to the the well to the right, mm-hmm. I guess, but east. it's to their left. But if you go to the right on the map, yeah, if you go east, right, yeah, right. You run into you run into Netherlands. You basically yes. run into Amsterdam, Smack pretty much. Smack dab. Yes. Smack into the Netherlands. A yes. little bit below the Netherlands on the coast is Belgium, right? And then a little bit below Belgium, a uh, little bit to the southeast is Luxembourg. Mm-hmm. Uh, Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg were all border Germany. Yes. On the east, on the west, they uh, Belgium and Luxembourg uh, border France. So, you know, these countries are important. They're sort of the buffer zone, if you will, uh, to a large degree between Germany and France and Germany and the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so England and France got their own treaty and they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we get these other guys involved? Because if the Germans come at us again, yeah. these guys are in in the middle of it and we're going to need to have a pre-existing arrangement with them about where can we put troops? And, exactly. Uh, it's all got to be worked who, out. Yeah. Who's who in the zoo? Exactly. Now, with the events in Czechoslovakia, Italy, Norway, Germany, Finland, etc., mm-hmm. they stepped up their negotiations for some kind of mutual assistance pact. Now, right. first there was the 50-year Treaty of Alliance and Mutual Assistance signed 4th of March 1947 in Dunkirk mm-hmm. by France in the United Kingdom. Now, Dunkirk, of course very famous for Churchill's great escape, mm-hmm. um, the great running away yeah. uh, of Winston Churchill, the uh, operation Let's Get the Fuck Out of Here, I think it was called. We're currently um, not winning strategy. Yeah, yeah. Just over Operation th- Run Away, <laughs> Run Away. Operation Stage Left. Yeah, so just over 300,000 uh, British and French troops were saved from the beaches of uh, northern France and Belgium. And you're right, but what makes this – strangely compelling for me is that France and Britain are going to come together and sign an agreement. We're going to defend each other in case Germany or anybody else attacks. It didn't quite go so well during the beginning of World War II when they had to run away, but but the, that's not the point. The point is you make up as many alliances as you can you know, for that horrible day when someone comes invading you. So again, they're doing the best they can, but it, you, have to, you have to be honest and say, it didn't really work out all that great the first time, but that doesn't mean you don't try and try again. So, Ray, uh, with your vast knowledge of World mm-hmm. War II, explain to me why the Germans allowed the French and the British to escape at Dunkirk and didn't crush them like they should have. Let's see if I can do this in under an hour. Okay, at first, um, when the Panthers come through northern France and uh, right above the Maginot Line, they're able to trap the BEF and they're able to trap the first French army in 
Belgium. Um, Hitler is, everything's going along great, but in fact, things are going along so well, Hitler gets nervous. He's like, last time in the, in the Great War, we were at this for four years and we couldn't get anywhere. And now it's been three weeks and we're already on the coast and we're already, you know, it's just going too well. So Hitler panics and he tells all the panzers to halt. So that gives the BEF and the French uh, more time than they would have had to to gather up something. Very early on, Churchill and Lord Gort, who were in charge of the BEF, going, you know what? This isn't working out. I don't know what happened to the French since the last war, but they've lost their their chutzpah. They have lost their um, whatever. And and France, and you, you probably know this from the studying that you've been doing for between World War One and World War Two, France could not collectively get itself together. There was a bunch of infighting. There's a bunch. There's tons of prim, uh, prime ministers. They just can't get their act together. Sorry, I'm getting off track. But the point is, okay. Uh, I'm, okay. <laughs> I'm going back. I'm going back to your question now. I apologize. So Hitler stopped the Panzers from crushing the BEF. He then lets them go on. But by that time, the uh, Allies had de- developed a pretty good perimeter around Dunkirk. Um, Gehring gets involved. But the point is between Hitler vacillating on his Panzers and Gehring making promises the Luftwaffe couldn't deliver. And Churchill being quite brilliant weeks earlier and said, you know what, this is bullshit. Let's gather up every little ship we can. The Germans gave the British barely enough time to get their men out of there. It was a humiliating loss. They left thousands of trucks, thousands of guns, thousands of uh, sidearms as well. And so when the British come back, they literally have nothing but their uniforms on. But the point is Hitler screwed up and he recognized it. But it was too late. The flower of the British Army was able to get away. What about General Oberst Gerd von Rundstedt? Oh, he was in charge of Army Group A, which was invading France. And even when Hitler stopped the Panzers at first, he said, no, this is bullshit. We have to keep going because the entire plan was for some Germans going into Belgium, Army Group B. You will be the anvil. The Panzers will come into northern France. There will be the hammer. We'll bring these two together, and we will literally destroy the French First Army, which was his biggest and best, and the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force. That was the plan. So suddenly Hitler's fucking up with the plan. Rundstedt backs him at first, but after a couple of days, Rundstedt goes, yeah, you know what? This, no, this is not going. This is not working. So he talks to Hitler a couple of times. Um, and so eventually the panzers are, are, are let loose. But again, the, uh, the defenders have developed a very impressive um, defense perimeter with a ton of, of large guns. And the RAF is coming over bombing things. And they did a pretty good job as well. But Hitler paused when he should not have. And the other part of it, and you probably run across this, is Hitler did admire the British, that he did not want war with them. He was hoping they they would see reason and they would come to the negotiating table. And he was going to say, look, you keep your empire. You keep the entire British empire. All I want is the European continent. That's all I want. I don't think that's asking for too much. And a lot of people in London went, yeah, it sounds fine to us. But Churchill and a few others went, fuck you. Fuck no. We will fight on in the beaches, yada, 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 yada. So Hitler had them on their knees and fucked it up. And now he's going to have to deal with them later when they get the Americans to help them. Well, I read it was actually von Rundstedt who ordered the halt because he wanted he had to do maintenance. He, of the he, tanks. he wanted to stop them. And yes, yeah. Hitler approved that, his request. That's how it went at first, but then Hitler said, "No, just stop the tanks because I want. I mean, keep them stopped uh, because I want 
the British to see what hopeless situation they're in and negotiate with me. And that was not going to happen. It got very muddled very quickly. Um, But at the end of the day, the British were given enough time to get the hell out of there. And they did. Thinking about the future, which is what all these guys are doing now. They're thinking about the future and they've got to come up with something. Uh, nice segue back into the thank you notes. Segue. So this this uh 50-year treaty of alliance and mutual assistance between Britain and France is about defending themselves <laughs> against Germany. Yeah. Big step forward for Anglo-French collaboration. Huge. Um, and assured the French, who were a little bit nervous about the Germans at this stage, that right. if there was ever another German attack, yeah, the British would provide all military and other support and assistance in its power. Now, the reason we're talking about this uh, in part is right. because as they started to think about how they might integrate other countries, first mm-hmm. of all, the Benelux countries and then the rest of uh, non-Soviet-aligned Europe, right? is they were thinking about integrating them into this treaty and it gets known as the Dunkirk model. Right. It's primarily a military-based treaty. Mm -hmm. If you get attacked, we will come to your defence with everything we have in the kit bag. Right. And that's our guarantee for the next 50 years. Yeah. Some Americans, though, Mm -hmm. didn't like this approach. Some of the key thinkers in the U.S., didn't like uh, a military-based treaty, particularly when they're trying to build something that's to defend Europe against the Soviets. Right. Because, as we'll see later on, um, it, it seemed a little bit, uh, a little bit too negative, a little bit too aggressive. Right. Rather than uh, an economic treaty. Yeah. Uh, to, to build a stronger Thanks. Europe. Yes. Yes. And you know, yeah. Better dispersion of the Marshall Plan credits. Right. Um, and now that the, the American version, the version that a lot of the Americans uh, were pushing for was what they called the Rio model. Now, the Rio model is based on a different treaty, the mm-hmm. Inter-American Treaty of Reciprocal Assistance. Oh, I like that. Commonly known as the Rio Treaty, the Rio Pact, or the Treaty of Reciprocal Assistance. It was also signed in 1947 in Rio de Janeiro. right amongst a lot of the countries of the Americas and mm-hmm. the United States. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the central principle contained in this one is an attack against one is considered an attack against them all, yes. so-called the hemispheric defence doctrine, which doesn't sound that much different to me to the Dunkirk model. I was trying to work out really right. what the major differences are between military support and assistance and attack against one is an attack against all. Yeah. No, I, did I th- you work out what the key differences are between them? No, I, uh, well, I, I think that what you just said a second ago, you actually um, you hit it on the head. Um, this this is just a good old fashioned. Hey, we're a group, we're a family, we're whatever. If someone messes with one of us, we're all going to kick their ass. I mean, that's common sense. That's playground rules, right? That's what you do. You and your friend, you got each other's back. I think you're right though about what you said when, for the Americans, the British and French Dunkirk Pact. It's it's too it's it's negative. I mean, the war is over. And we're talking about the Marshall Plan. We're talking about aid. We're talking about building up everybody's lives and getting back to having a high quality of life. And you're talking about war and destruction and mutual aid. I think it just hit the Americans wrong um, in that sense. Besides, it's just these two countries. 
And there's not a lot of details worked out. I think for the Americans, this just was not the way to go. Not that they had really anything better to planned, uh, planned out. Not that they really wanted to be this deeply actively involved. I think they just were criticizing in general because it struck the wrong tone at the wrong time. Well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm still not clear on exactly how these two yeah. models are that different at the end of the day. But I do want trust. to talk about yeah, go ahead. why the Americans signed this uh, Rio Pact, the Rio Treaty. Oh, well, the story behind it is kind of interesting. Because all those ladies, those Latin, lovely Latin ladies belong to us. And so we'll formally protect you, but guess what? We were going to do it anyway. Why? Because you're ours. We don't like to say it out loud, but... We all know you belong to us. Whatever America says goes. So two on the nose. Well, we know about the Monroe Doctrine. We've right. talked about that a lot. Um, yeah. Named, of course, after Marilyn Monroe, basically stated, I'll oh, fuck anything that moves. <laughs> um, there was the I'll oh, fuck anything that moves doctrine, basically, um, if it's Latino, <laughs> Latina. <You're... laughs> hey, guys. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Named after James Monroe, uh, earlier president, basically stated that any intervention in the political affairs uh, anywhere in the Americas by foreign powers was a potentially hostile act against the United States and the United States would intervene. Now, of course, if the US intervenes in, say, Ukraine's politics... um, That has nothing to do with Russia who sits on their border. Yes, Yes. Nothing at all. This is a specific but, warning to the European nations. Any of you sons of bitches, because we know your games, how we used to be a colony. You come over here and you start fucking around, hell to the no. This is America land. Okay, I don't know what the proper term is, but this is America land. You do not come over here. This is our backyard. Fuck off. But if we oh, choose to day, go into your backyard. All day long, son. All day yeah, long. Got, yeah. That's none of your fucking business. God approved. God tested now, after, yeah. In in 1904, Teddy Roosevelt came up with the Roosevelt Corollary to the yes. Monroe Doctrine. Yeah. Uh, this came after the Venezuelan crisis of 1902 to 1903, right? Which is a which is actually a pretty cool story. So I'm going to mm. tell it here. Okay. So. Late 1902, uh, Britain, Germany, and Italy imposed a naval blockade. Uh, against Venezuela. Right. Um, Venezuela's president at the time was a guy called uh, Cipriano Castro. Um, Good name. One of their, you know, we've talked about Venezuela's political history on the Bullshit Filter before, you know, right. just a series of strong men they've had yes. uh, for uh, ever since they had independence. Yeah. Um, the Bolivarian Revolution, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he came to power and refused to pay foreign debts and damages suffered mm-hmm. by the European businesses, basically. Right. Um, because, the, you know, as we know, South America, Latin America, um, the playground of European right. and American businesses for yes. a very long time. Yes. Oh, take all their natural resources, fuck all their best-looking women, and... Uh, you know, basically just own everything that they could own, right. pay off a few corrupt government officials, easy money, what you do. great times to be had for all except the locals. Right. Um, so there was various <laughs> European businesses from Germany, Britain, Italy in particular 
exploiting Venezuela through deals with various corrupt governments. Yeah. Castro took over and said, hey, you know, your deals are with these motherfuckers and right. these motherfuckers are gone. I'm not respecting the deals that you had with these guys. Exactly. You paid these guys kickbacks um, to, you know, sell you the the land rights, the oil rights, the tobacco rights, the telephone rights, the electricity rights, whatever it is. Yeah. Fuck you, not my problem. You take it up with them. <laughs> what, they're dead? Well, it's not really my problem. Right. Um, and so the British and German uh, bankers, financiers, pushed their respective governments to do something about this. You can't just let this guy get away yeah. with not paying us what we're owed. That's why and, we're there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, governments exist to make sure that they're um, rich, stay rich, basically. That's the job of government. That sounds right to me. So um, they agreed uh, with their bankers and finances to do a naval blockade, basically right. to block any supply in or out of the country, uh, bring them to their knees. And also there was a, you know, as there always is, there, was a, there were rebels that mm -hmm. were trying to overthrow Castro's government. And so there was another civil war going on, and, and, and the Europeans were supporting the rebels, believing that if the new guy got into the government, then yeah. he would give them better deals than yeah. Cipriano Castro. Mm -hmm. um, so this is all going on. In June of 1902, Castro seized a British ship called the Queen, um, basically claimed it was aiding the rebels, and... Uh, he and, and the British got upset about that, as you would right. imagine. But Castro was working on the assumption that the US would not get involved because of the Monroe Doctrine. Right. Oh, but the no. British and the Germans right. assured Teddy Roosevelt, who was president at the time, mm -hmm. that they weren't going to take any territory if they won. Right. They just wanted to take all of the money in the territory. Pay back. Pay back. Look, we're not going to seize the territory. No, we just not. want our money, yeah, honey. So it's going to empty the banks and any gold yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Co and Roosevelt was Roosevelt was fine with that. Um, he famously said in 1901, if any South American country misbehaves mm -hmm. toward any European country, let the European country spank it. Oh, he don't play. Roosevelt did not Teddy play. Teddy Roosevelt's uh, foreign policy Spank in a nutshell. Spank it. Yeah. Yes. Spank it. Spank so he was, right. he was not getting involved. So there was a blockade. Eventually it ended in arbitration to resolve it. Now, Venezuela's debts, mm -hmm. we have to understand here, were enormous relative yeah. to its income at the time. The government owed 120 million bolivars in principle and wow. 46 million bolivars in interest and then another 186 million bolivars in war-related damages. They can't be that bad. So all up, that's, uh, that's 200, 306, uh, 312, 300 and. Three hundred and fifty-two million bolivars it owed to these yeah. foreign governments, or a shit ton. Yeah, its annual income was thirty million bolivars. So how many years? How many decades? So uh, ten years, basically, of their entire income. Yes, don't do anything else. Don't spend it on anything else. Would have to go to pay now. 
this dispute went to the International Court for Arbitration, the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague, which, surprise, surprise, uh, ruled on behalf of the Europeans (laughs) and told the Venezuelans they needed to pay. But it also told the Venezuelans they needed to give the British and the Germans in particular preferential treatment in the payment of their claims. Here we go. Uh Uh-huh. Now, there was a number of countries, including the US, that was owed money by Venezuela that hadn't been involved in the blockade. Therefore, they weren't going to get their money because the countries that were involved in the blockade got the preferential treatment, according to the Court of Arbitration. So the Americans got fucked out of this. And we don't like that. So, yeah. We don't. don't... Sorry, go ahead. You know, the US's main concern here, apart from not getting their money, was there was an incentive now in place, Yeah, a precedent had been set for Europeans to go, well, if we just get involved in naval blockades of these countries, uh, the court will rule in our favour, we'll get preferential treatment on the payment of the debts, and anyone who doesn't get involved is fucked. Colony. De facto Colony. Yeah, sorry. Teddy came out with the Roosevelt Corollary, which basically said the United States would intervene in any Central American or Caribbean states if they needed to stabilize their economic affairs because they were unable to pay their international debts. Yes. If they committed flagrant or chronic wrongdoings, that somehow justified Washington getting involved. Yeah. Yeah, okay. All right. We reserve the right to intervene Anytime. in any any of these countries <clears throat> if we don't think they're handling their money very well. Right. Um or yeah, yeah, if they're yeah, ba- yeah, uh, basically, yeah. If a European or American business does a corrupt deal with a corrupt government official of a, of, of a country, right. then that corrupt official in that country gets overthrown by his people for being corrupt. We're like, hey, not our fucking problem. Yeah. Give us our money, and That's if you right. don't, we'll invade. That's, That's right. basically we will the Roosevelt corollary. Our money. Yeah. yeah. Now, you probably came across this, but so he says, yeah, he says, we have the right if there's any flagrant or chronic wrongdoings. Later on, he says, and you have to love Teddy for this, since the United States would not permit the European powers to lay their hands on, he had an obligation to do it himself. So he's literally like, you bastards, stay away. This is ours. This is bullshit. And if no one's yeah. going to get involved, well, then I guess America has to get involved. You're welcome. So yeah. beautiful You're move welcome. on his part. Yeah. Teddy, of course, his famous um, approach to diplomacy and foreign policy <laughs> was speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Um, he did go far. Yeah. Anyway, so. Yeah. That happened in 1904. Um, Then during World War II, there were, of course, rumors. We've talked about this in earlier episodes that Axis powers were trying to form alliances with Latin and South American, Central American countries. Mexico, supposedly, they were doing a deal with they were going to come over the border of the U.S. Right. And so the U.S. needed to shore up their relationship with these countries. Yes, um, they managed to do that during the war, but after the war, those countries were then left out of Dumbarton Oaks, the conference right. where they were deciding who was going to rule the world and how they were going to rule it. These countries, South Latin America and South American, Central American countries, not very happy yes. about being left right. out of that. And they yeah. protested 
So to make them happy, the U.S. signed the Rio Pact. And also, it was a way of trying to keep out socialist and communist right. uh, rebels. You know, let's let's create friendly alliances with right-wing dictators throughout the Americas to prevent any socialists or communists coming to power. Yeah. By the way, Castro, Cipriano Castro, was finally overthrown a few years later by his Vice President Juan Vicente Gomez, a.k.a. Mm. El Bagre, the catfish. Oh. Hmm. Which was a reference to his bushy mustache and uh, generally surly appearance. El Bagre. Sure. Castro went to Europe for medical treatment and then there was a coup in his absence. Um, El Bagre Gomez then signed a whole bunch of deals with foreign oil companies, giving them access to Venezuelan oil. Yeah. So they loved him, mostly Americans. And he, although he's a brutal tyrant, he was supported by the West uh, from 1908 until his death in 1935. Wow. And if I could, because uh, I, I just find this funny, but I won't, I won't ruin your story, even though there's much more after this. When FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, first comes to the presidency, uh, his first full year, 1934, he says, you know what, my cousin, my second cousin, whatever, Teddy, was a little intense with that Monroe Doctrine and everything else he mentioned. I just want to let you know that from now on, we're going to call it the good neighbor policy. And let me tell you what I mean by that. What I mean is that you have your rights. You do your thing. We're not going to come in there and step on your toes. You live your best life. We'll live ours. I just want you to know that from now on, America will be a good neighbor to you. In fact, in 1934, he backed that up because there were four dictators in Latin America at the time. He said, yeah, no, you're asking me to do something about it. I'm not going to do anything about it. Why? Because we're good neighbors. You handle your own problems. So, we get involved when it benefits us. We stay away when it doesn't benefit us, but it doesn't stop there. I don't I don't want to jump too far ahead, but this story has one more ironic part to it that you just got to admire America's politicians because they're willing to do or say anything to get a leg up. Are you still talking about Venezuela or are you talking about something else? Now? I'm talking about the, the whole of Latin America, what happens uh, after World War II. Oh, well, tell it because I'm done with Latin America. Like I just said, you know, uh, uh, FDR mentions the um, the good neighbor policy. That policy comes to an end as the Cold War starts in 1945 because the U.S. felt that there was a greater need to protect the Western Hemisphere from Soviet influence, kind of like what you were saying. But then it gets mwah, chef's kiss. In 1954, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles invoked the Monroe Doctrine and the Roosevelt Colliery at the 10th Pan-American Conference in Caracas, denouncing the intervention of Soviet communism in Guatemala. So we go from heavy-handed to we're going to be good neighbors to from now on, it is truly, openly, whatever we say goes because we're protecting you from the communists. And um when uh, Dulles gave that speech in 1954, it was, it was used to justify Operation PBS Success that deposed a democratically elected president, Jacobo Abinez, and installed a military regime of Carlos Castillo Armas, uh, which is the first of a series of military leaders. So it's Teddy Roosevelt's heavy-handed. FDR comes in and says, no, let's all get along. And then after the war ends and the Cold War starts, 
uh, I guess it's Eisenhower that goes, you know what, we're bringing it all back, but we're doing it because of our fear of communism. We're going to protect you, even if we have to be overhanded. No, we're going to be overhanded uh, to protect you from communism. So we went the full circle when, when it comes no, to Latin America. No wonder they don't trust FD- us. FDR yeah. was just going, <laughs> FDR was just uh, preempting the um, shit, what's her name? The woman who was uh, Reagan's favorite, Kirkpatrick. Kirkpatrick. Doctrine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kirkpatrick. Yeah. Put a smile if on they're it. right wing, if yeah. they're right wing dictators, they're, they're our people. We're fine. It's our They'll peeps. do business with us. Yeah, yeah, it's the socialist dictators that we are exactly. going to have to get involved in. Right yes. wing dictators yeah. is fine and dandy. Absolutely. Okay, so back to Benelux. Yeah. Um, so this broader Benelux Treaty, uh, some people were suggesting the the so-called Dunkirk model, others were suggesting the Rio model. Right. Um, the Benelux countries were reluctant to sign because they were worried about getting the Soviets offside, especially without a commitment from the US yeah. to support them in the event of a Soviet attack or a domestic communist uprising. But right. when things progressed in Czechoslovakia, uh, sort of the, the pressure was on, and they're like, right. "Okay, well, we need to we need to do something now. Even if the US aren't going to step up, we need uh, we we need whatever assistance we can get from Britain and France." Which, yeah. to be fair, at this point, was going to be fuck all. Like, if something had happened in 1947, 1948, pretty much, it was fuck all. The British were going to be able to do about or it, the or French. French were going to be able to do yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But. Me- so there was a meeting in Brussels three days after the Prague quote-unquote coup that we've talked about. The Benelux premiers and foreign ministers tried to speed things up. but So there's still a problem here, though, for the French. The French were really obsessed with the German situation. Right. Yeah, but um, yeah. They were like, you know, if Germany becomes part, West Germany becomes part of a... Western alliance. Right. How are we going to sell that to our people back home who yeah. just were raped and pillaged yeah. by the for Germans years. For, for years. Five years. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah. how are we going to sell that back home? Stan it's a big problem Barry? for Bidou. Huh? Yeah. Sorry. Bidou, the uh, French foreign minister, has got a real problem with how do, how do I sell this back home? Yeah. Um, one path. To, to selling it would be to get a commitment from the US troops that they would, well, from the US that their troops would stay in Germany until the communist threat was gone. Yeah. But they're not exactly sure how to sell that to the yeah. Americans. If, if I, but, yeah, sorry. I just want to, just to wrap up at yeah. this Brussels meeting, Bevan, the British foreign minister, said, Europe was now in a critical period of six to eight weeks, which would decide the fate of Europe. Yeah. Six to eight weeks. That's it. That's all we've got Is there before it all comes crashing down. A ticking clock that I can't see because, you know, he mentioned six to eight weeks and then Stalin hears about the uh, do we have anything planned in the next six to eight weeks? No. What the fuck are they talking about? But it was just that perceived fear because, as we mentioned last time, you know, the Soviets are talking to Finland, they're talking to Norway. And again, the British and the Americans who are really, really driving this uh, are to a degree 
letting their imagination run away with them. You were talking at the beginning of this about, you know, perception and about everybody has already got their predetermined ideas or whatever. And the Americans are, and the British are doing exactly that. And they're viewing everything that happens through that lens. So yeah, they're just getting more and more and more ramped up. What makes it a little harder for uh, France, uh, France is going to be the, uh, uh, they're going to be a, a pain in the ass to everybody at this point. But Charles de Gaulle, who was the leader of the Free French at the end of World War II, um, didn't like the new government that came along. He didn't like the Fourth Republic. He certainly didn't like communists. So he left the French government and started his own political party in 1947. And so he's adding his own individual wrinkles to all of this. He knows, everybody knows he hates the communists, but he also hates the current French government as well. So he's giving them no support. The British and the Canadians and the Americans are going to do an end run around France later on that's going to really piss them off. But the point is, you've got this perceived threat, you've got this perceived downcount, you've got this perceived massive enemy that's coming at you at any second, even though no one's told the Soviet Union about this, Soviet Union about this, and everybody's just freaking out and no one's staying calm. But this entire time, what doesn't get mentioned is that the Soviet Union has not crossed over into Europe once and started invading. They just, they're not doing anything. This is in, in the Western people's heads. And on one hand, you can't really blame them. But on the other hand, they really are taking this way, way too far and they're causing a lot of political panic. Right. Yeah. There's just this, the, the West had convinced themselves yes, that's that the what it Soviets is. were going to invade any moment now um, mm -hmm. and remain convinced of that for the rest of the Cold War. Yes. And it's the same thing going on today. Like you, you read anything about Putin or Russia in the Western media, the vast majority of the analysis is Putin's trying to rebuild uh, the Soviet empire right. or the Russian empire. If Putin gets away with invading Ukraine, he's going to invade every other country in the mm -hmm. orbit and rebuild it. It's the, uh, it's the same old uh, anti-Russian fear rhetoric that we saw right through the Cold War. Yeah, We're seeing it all again, even though communism is dead and buried in Russia and, piss, and the grave has been pissed on. It's the same rhetoric right. regurgitated. I don't know if I ever told you this, but when um, I read an article that has stayed with me ever since I read it, um, when uh, Russian troops first crossed over into the Crimea, there was this article, I, I don't think it might have been the Atlantic Monthly, I really can't remember. And what it is, is it's Putin falling asleep and having a dream. And in his dream, Stalin comes to him, he goes, greetings, comrade, how are things going for the great Russian empire? Oh, they're going good. How's Ukraine? Well, we don't own that anymore. What about all that land to the south of us? Yeah, we don't own that anymore either. Uh, what about the um, the Baltic states? Yeah, we don't own those either. And Stalin's like, what in the fuck have you been doing? You know. And so in this article, in this dream, it's Stalin pushing Putin to get it all back, which I know sounds stupid, but that's that was in a major article. And, it, and it, like you were saying, it makes it sound like, yeah, you can't trust any Russian all the way from Stalin to Putin. They're all the same. They just want their massive empire. But it, but it continued that uh, lust for land or territory or conquest or, or whatever that supposedly the Russians have. But Meanwhile, the American corporations are doing it without bullets. But the point is, when I first read that, I'm like, oh, my God, this is something that people just aren't letting up on. Russia will always be evil no matter what it does. I mean, it's doing something wrong now. But the point is, they can't win. There's no fair court for them to, to air their grievances 
it's just not going to happen, especially with the with the Western press the way it is. This whole thing, the this uh, bigger European treaty, is a non-starter without the U.S. Now, as I said at the beginning, views in the U.S. were divided. On one hand, yeah. you had the isolationists who didn't want the U.S. involved in European affairs during peacetime, right. and there were some pretty heavy headers in this group. Um, Arthur Vandenberg. Mm -hmm. uh, chair of Vandenberg Industries, Import and Export. Uh, he was also the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. And that's, that's a big deal. Senator yeah. Robert Taft from Ohio, son of President Taft, Taft yes. and uh, himself a presidential candidate on several occasions. Yeah. Now, Vandenberg had publicly renounced isolationism uh, in 1945 and he yes. called himself an interventionist. Yes. But getting him to agree to the U.S. being a member of a peacetime military pact in Europe was another story. So right. guys like Marshall and Truman are concerned about how they get Republicans and powerful Republicans. You know, we have to remember during this period um, Truman's political power is not very strong. Right. Um, everyone knows he inherited uh, the the position. Mm -hmm. um, he, he's he's not very well liked domestically, politically. Right. Um, he's seen to be kind of weak, which is why he was always trying to be a strong man. Right. Um, you know, he's blamed for letting Stalin get away with too much out of Potsdam, like when mm -hmm. Roosevelt was blamed with uh, letting him get away with too much at Yalta, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So the, the Democrats are in the White House, but politically they're fairly weak and they're expected to lose one of the upcoming presidential elections. And it's coming, yes. So they've got to be very careful about how they deal with powerful Republicans like Vandenberg. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, you had American leaders, uh, politicians, uh, businessmen, uh, etc., who did want the US to somehow get involved in supporting Europe, but they weren't sure what form it should take. Yeah. Um, should should Europe be involved in an economic union, an economic union or military alliance? And it, it, what kind of level of involvement for, should the US have? Now, right. George Kennan the you know famous uh, basic creator of uh, Cold War policy mm -hmm. was at the time the director of the State Department's policy planning staff. He had serious objections to Bevan's proposals. He didn't like the Dunkirk model. Right. He didn't like the idea of a military union as a starting point. He thought it was too negative. Um, and the language of the Dunkirk Treaty was obviously all about uh, preventing a future attack from Germany. Right. If you're going to have a united Europe, you need to have at least Western Germany as part of that. You can't have uh, a model that was built around protecting yourselves against Germany as the basis of a pan-European treaty that involves Germany. Exactly. So it's, uh, it's difficult. He, yeah. he doesn't see that as the way forward. It, it's interesting that the two main guys at the U.S. State Department who were against the new treaty that Bevan was trying to put together, Kennan and Charles Bolin, mm -hmm. who was the State Department counselor, were also the two experts on the Soviet <laughs> Union. 
the two guys that were by far the leading experts on the Soviet Union they said, had lived there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is a bad start to a European treaty, um, yeah. but no one really listened to what they thought. So you wanted to say something? If I could, you mentioned Vandenberg. And the one thing that I found interesting, and I wanted to get your opinion on this, he has a lot in common with uh, with Secretary of State George Marshall. They're like, we we like the idea of some kind of United States of Europe. We like the idea of America having some kind of treaty to help protect you because let's face it, you're our customers and we need you to buy all of our washing machines and cars and everything else. So they they like that. It, in general, in the concept and the cosmos, they like it. What people like George Marshall and Vandenberg and I think even uh, General Lucius Clay, where they're like, we want to see genuine effort on your part. You're getting together and you're having these meetings, but like you were saying a second ago, you got two countries trying to join and then you got five countries kind of join. What about all the other countries in Europe? You can't, you can't leave them out. And so the Americans are like, show me that you're doing something that if Soviet Russia attacks, you can actually react um, and we'll be helping you. We just won't be doing it all ourselves. So the Americans are still looking for progress and looking for effort on the European side, and the Europeans are almost afraid to make any progress without knowing where, when, or where the Americans are coming in. So it's almost a, it's a log jam. It's a catch twenty two. I don't know what you want to call it, but clearly, both sides are waiting for the other one to do anything. And like you said a couple of minutes ago, there seems to be this magical countdown before the Soviets come pouring across the border in their millions. So there's a lot of tension going on. There's a lot of misunderstanding going on, but there's a distinct lack of open and honest communication with each other between the Americans and the Europeans. Everybody's waiting for everyone else to make the first move. That's not the recipe for success. Yeah. And I think, you know, having a countdown to a doomsday clock is a, you know, a, a very old mechanism for trying right. to create a sense of urgency. If you believe yeah. Benjamin Netanyahu um, Iran's going to have a nuclear bomb he's within been, the next five years for the last twenty <laughs> for the last twenty years. Um, any day you now, know, you have any day now. Any day now, yeah. Jesus is going to return any right. day now for the last two thousand years. You know, so it's is that the record? Two thousand? I think that's a record. I think that's the record. Yeah, okay. yeah. Congratulations to he's in the Guinness Book of Records with that. It's like JC uh, most number of no shows. Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Now, there were some Americans who were advocates, and I'll probably wrap up with this story. Okay. Um, there were some Americans who were advocates for the U.S. insisting on a United States of Europe. Um, mm -hmm. Big hitters, John Foster Dulles, Walter Littman, the journalist J. William Fulbright, right. and Congressman Hale Boggs. Who? What do you know about the Congressman Hale? Well, I take from that not much. Hale uh, Boggs. Yeah. Unfortunate name. That's all I wanted to say. Go ahead. Unfortunate uh, life too. Oh, um, really? Hale Boggs, I think he was from Louisiana, New Orleans. Um, I've always been fascinated with this guy's story. Right. Um, quite powerful dude. Very big heavy hitter. Um, disappeared in 1972 in mysterious circumstances. Mm. He was uh, campaigning for one of his colleagues right. uh, who was the senator in Alaska. They were both in a little twin-engine Cessna mm -mm. and it disappeared 
over Alaska and was never found, even though it had an emergency locator transmitter as per Alaskan state law and federal law. Yeah. Never, it was never located. Um, The pilot apparently was seen to have an emergency portable locator in a briefcase when he got on the plane. It was never found. So, but the backstory to this is he had been a member of the Warren Commission. Right. Who reportedly at first disagreed with the findings of the commission. He disagreed with mm. the single shooter premise. Wow. But then later seemed to back them publicly. Yeah. Um, but Jim Garrison, a.k.a. Kevin Costner <laughs> in uh, Oliver Stone's film. Right. <laughs> told an author who was writing a book about all of this that it was Hale Boggs that prompted him to reopen his investigation into the Kennedy assassination. Mm. Hale Boggs on the side was like, I can't say this publicly, but you should reopen the case. Then. If I die. Yeah. 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 In April 1971, Hale Boggs yeah. gave a speech on the floor of the House in which he strongly attacked FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover and the whole of the FBI. You don't do that. No. In do that. Also in April 1971, he said publicly, over the post-war years, we have granted to the elite and secret police within our system vast new powers over the lives and liberties of the people at the request of the trusted and respected heads of those forces and their appeal to the necessities of national security, we have exempted those grants of power from due accounting and strict surveillance. And then in October 1972, his plane disappeared and was never found. When you were reading that, the first thing that came to my mind was the series we did on the history of drugs, on the war on drugs, where cops were getting more, uh, and obviously federal agents were getting more power. And now America is dealing with cops who have too much power. Uh, Body cams don't make a difference. Anyway, so, so this guy says, fuck you, to power, and then he disappears. Not surprised. Not surprised. He was power. He he was power. But there's power talking to power. Yeah, you, yeah. Don't, dude, you don't do that. Yeah, no, He no. called bullshit on the Warren Commission and right. he called bullshit on Jay Gahoover and the FBI strike and then two. he disappeared. Yeah, and that's strike three. Yeah. yeah. Mm, mm. All right. I think we'll wrap this episode up there. We'll be back next time with uh, more on these treaties and the U.S. involvement. And uh, we've got another really good story. I've got one really good story in the next episode that you don't want to miss out on involving another fuck machine. An iron curtain has descended across the continent.